So church, we believe that God is eternal and unchanging and gloriously triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that He is good. And, and we believe that He is, is a speaking God. He's spoken to us in His revelation, the Scripture. Let me just read a few promises about the character of God. This is in Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. So, or in Psalm 4, which talks about the God who blesses. He says, he says, many say to us, who will do us any good? And he says, Lord, lift the light of your face upon us. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Or the promise to God's covenant people as they are in the Babylonian captivity, a well-known passage. As they're away from their homeland for these 70 years, the Lord says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. God says, you know, I, I want to bless you. I want to surround you with my protection. Or Matthew 7, the closing of the Sermon on the Mount, a well-known statement by Christ. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who, who built his house upon the rock and when the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, it stood strong because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And when the rains came down, listen, the rains will come. And when the streams rose, the streams will rise. And when winds of adversity blew against the house, and those winds are coming, for some of us they're here, that house crashed with a thunderous crash. Once again, God is, He is good, and He's a communicating God. He wants to give us a future and a hope. So we come to the book of Colossians, we're in chapter 3, that talks about Christian living, and I'll very briefly go through what we've covered the last few weeks some foundational principles. Verse 10 of Colossians 3 says that we are to be people who are renewed in our knowledge of God. We grow in our knowledge of God as we read the Bible and think well. He says in verse 11 to understand the encompassing glory of Christ. He says here in the church there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no Scythian or barbarian. There is no slave or free man. In other words, there's, in the church, there's no, ultimately, there's no ethnicity. There is no economic leveling or ownership. There is no religious affiliation that excludes people. But he says, but Christ is all and he is in all. The all-encompassing glory of Christ. 
And then the other principle is because of that, you put on a new wardrobe. He said, as God's chosen people, God's loved, eternally loved people, put on hearts of compassion and gentleness and kindness and meekness and humility and, and bear with each other and forgive each other. And of all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. So you, you, you put on a new wardrobe because Christ is the all-encompassing Savior. And he gets down to brass tacks and particulars, and he says, because of these things, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the glory of the gospel so work its way in your spirit that the peace of Christ rules in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you've been called to each other, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, secondly, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly, luxuriantly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and, and be thankful. And then last week we covered this verse, and whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him with thanksgiving. So you, whatever you do, you do, all of life is an act of worship before God. And, and, and in the midst of all this, the fourth point in particular, God has called you to community. He's called you to community. God loves community. God is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He loves community. He made us for community. Listen, he says, Verse 13, bear with one another. Same verse, forgive each other. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Verse 16, let the word of Christ will in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. God is a community God. He loves community. He's called us to community. The old confessions of faith say that God, say that God has established the family, the church, and the government. The church and family, all about community. So, so he, Paul has laid the table principally, and now he jumps into the application. And we'll be doing with these verses the next three weeks, God willing. Verse 18, chapter 3, says this. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So he jumps right from the principle into application. And today I'm going to deal with the issue of fathers. Love, excuse me, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Our, one of our confessional statements that we read and think about is the Baptist faith and message. And there's a statement in your worship guide from that particular confession or statement. And it says this, this is an amazing statement. Think about it. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. God has established the family as the foundational institution of human society. And if that, 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 that is true, and I think it is. We all stop and say, whoa, well, let, let me think through this. He goes on and says this. 
The family is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Family cannot be defined in various ways from, cult from culture to culture or time to time. New paragraph, marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate communion or companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. In other words, marriage is a glorious gift from God. The purpose for marriage are threefold. Companionship, sexual satisfaction, and children. Marriage is the foundational building block of, of our culture. So, so listen, if, if we have strong marriages in our church, for example, then things go more smoothly. If Christ is invited into your home, into your marriage, into your lives, we become people who walk with one another. That's why we have a ministry here called Reengage. It's a, a, a great program, 16 weeks for married people, married one month or 50 years, for marriages that they are, are very good or marriages that may be struggling a little bit. It, it's just, I, I, you need to do Reengage. You do it in community with other people, you walk with them. We have great leaders. Uh, I, I love this thing. I love the program. And, and one reason I love it is if your marriage is strong, your lives will be filled with Jesus if it's centered in Christ. It's, it's a wonderful thing because I believe the family and marriage is the foundational institution of human society. God is good. He's a speaking God, and he's given us his word. So to, this morning, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The scripture says in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Whew. Wow. To love means to cherish, to have affection for, to take pleasure in. Wives, I have good news for you. The Bible does not ever say you're to love your husbands. You're off the hook. Husbands, it says, love your wives, Ephesians, as Christ loved the church. And do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them means to, 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 to don't cause them to have bitter feelings. 1 Peter 3, it talks about marriage. Verse 7 says to the husbands, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, the way of knowledge. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Weaker vessel physically, we think. Showing her honor. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Show, show them honor. Protect them. Cherish them. Now, I'm going to take five minutes and discuss an issue with you. Because this uh, is all over the internet and it was the front page news in the Washington Post this week. Um, full disclosure, this is a, it's about a man named Paige Patterson. In response, uh, Paige Patterson is president of Southwestern Seminary, where I went to seminary. Dean Henderson went to seminary. Carl Schooling and I went to seminary. Before that, he was president of Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He's preached here. 
I consider him to be a friend. I see him occasionally. He's always very cordial to me. Uh, but uh, this is what happened. Um, oh, well, let me just say this. He's, the, he's the, one of the architects of the conservative resurgence. In 1978, the Southern Baptists, some of them said the, the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Lutheran Church and, and the, all the mainline churches, Methodist Church, all have drifted to the left. We don't want that to happen to us. We want to be a Bible-believing people. Therefore, we're going to work hard for a conservative resurgence and to be people of the book. And in God's gracious providence, that happened. And so now we have incredible seminaries. And we have wonderful mission boards that are centered on the gospel of Jesus. And I, it, it thrills my heart. So I've, I've been a proponent of the conservative resurgence even as a seminary student in 1978. So, so, so I'm, I appreciate Paige Patterson. I have a deep regard for him. He's 75. So a, uh, this has come out a few, few years ago. A woman came to see Paige Patterson and she said, I am married to an unbelieving man. Now stop there. We'll stop there right now. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse, what should you do? Well, the Bible's very clear that marriage is a covenant. Listen, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, I said, well, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That if you're married to an unbeliever and you profess Christ and you live the Christian life, then you have a leavening, blessing influence in that home in the life of your spouse and your children. If you were to depart, then that influence would be gone. So as we live our lives, people, our spouse, the unbelievers say, man, there's something different about you. You're different, and that will impact your children. We're called to bless the coming generations. Also, 1 Peter, passage I just read, says this. It says, um, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not believe the word, they may be one to Christ without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, which is, which, uh, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He says, if you're a, a woman living with an unbelieving husband, live in such a way that you, without saying a word, preach Jesus. And so we pray for our people who are in these marriages. And, and then it says, that let your adorning not be, not be your coiffured hair and gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. And we, we need to scream this in our Botox culture where we have... We, we think that growing old is, is, is a horrific experience. You're going to get old. 
That's a prophetic statement, okay? It's going to happen. Grow old gracefully, the hidden person of the heart. So, so if, if you're a non-believer married to a believer, you just love them in the name of Christ. But what happened? This lady came to him. She said, I'm married to a, a non-believer, and he is physically abusive. What do I do? He said, go back home and pray and let him see your life. She did. She came back a few days later to church. She had two black eyes. And she said, I hope you're happy. And his response was something like this that's been confirmed. I am happy because your husband was at church today. Now let me say this. I have made many stupid statements. That was a stupid statement. We should never, ever minimize abuse. Conversely, I'm going to tell you a story. I do not recommend this as a remedy, but it's a story about protecting women. Some of us here know the name E.V. Hill. Again, I'm not recommending this. Say it again. E.V. Hill was a great preacher. He died about 15 years ago. He was an African-American, raised in Mississippi, for over 50 years ministered in Watts in downtown L.A. Preached the gospel. I was at a couple of pastor's conferences where he preached, and he, he could just, the cadence, and it was just rich. So if you can Google E.V. Hill, you, you'll be blessed. Google his wife's sermon, his wife's funeral sermon. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, so E.V. Hill told this story. He said, when I was a little boy, my dad was a pastor of a church in Mississippi, the 20s. I think it's the 20s. He said, a woman came to a prayer meeting, and she was, had been battered physically. And they said to her, what happened? She says, well, my husband beat me. And they said, well, you come and you live with this family, and, and we'll work towards helping you out. And so the deacons visited her husband. And he came to church on Sunday, and he was battered and beaten. And he said, brothers, I'm seeing life in a whole new way. Now, I don't recommend that. But the issue is the church protects their own. And we have some big deacons, by the way, if you want to know that. So I want to cover a statement with you from the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Google that. That's a wonderful organization. This is just a statement on abuse. Just to let you know, this is where we would be. Um, they have nine statements. I'm going to read one and then cover three very quickly. Statement number one is, we believe that abuse can be defined as any act or failure to act resulting in imminent risk, serious injury, death, physical or emotional or sexual harm or exploitation of another person. And then it says this. We believe that abuse is not only a sin, but a crime. It is destructive and evil. Abuse is a hallmark of the devil and is in direct opposition to the purposes of God. Abuse must not be tolerated in the Christian community. Next statement. We believe that the local church and Christian ministries have a responsibility to establish safe 
environments to execute policies and practices that protect against any form of abuse, to confront abusers and to protect the abused, which includes the responsibility to report abuse to civil authorities. And we've done that on several occasions, and the magnificent people in the Mount Pleasant Police Department have been very gracious. And I, I just, I thank God for our police men and women. Last thing, we believe that the church must offer tender concern and care for the abused and must help the abused to find hope and healing through the gospel. The church should do all it can to provide ongoing counseling and support for the abused. The wounds of abuse run deep, and so patience and mercy are needed over the long haul as the church cares for the abused. So, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. To, to, to drive this home, I, I want to go to the, to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. Ruth was written at the time of the judges before David. And just walk with you through this book for just a few minutes. I, I love the book of Ruth and I love Ruth and Boaz. I mean, you're going to find out why in a few minutes. I mean, the, it, this is just a, a sweet, glorious story. Background, I'm going to have to run through this. Ruth is married. She's, from the, she's a Jewish woman, uh, not Ruth. Naomi's married to a man named Elimelech. Uh, there's a famine in Bethlehem where they live, so they go to a foreign land called Moab with their two boys. As they go to the foreign land so they can survive, uh, her husband dies. Naomi, Naomi, her name means pleasant or sweet. So her, her husband dies, and then her two boys marry Moabite women, one of whom is named Ruth. And then her two sons die. And so there is Naomi in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law who, who are non-Jews. And here's her testimony. She says, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's depressed. She says, I buried my husband, I buried two boys, and I have two daughters-in-law. And I'm living in a foreign land. And so Naomi hears that the famine is over. In Bethlehem area, it's been over 10 years, and so she decides to go back to her country, back to her countrymen, and the daughters-in-law say, we want to go with you, and she says, really, you should stay here, and, and one daughter-in-law says, okay, I'll stay, but, but Ruth, the Moabite, the non-Jew, says to her mother, these, these words that you've heard many times, she said to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to go away from you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. She's making a statement of faith in Jehovah. She said, I, I'm, I'm leaving the Moabite gods, I'm embracing Jehovah God. And your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I mean, she, she's an incredible woman. So she, a Moabite woman, goes to Bethlehem with her Jewish mother-in-law. And she meets all these people. They go, to, they go to Bethlehem. The Bible says they create quite a stir. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? It's been 10 years. Is that you, Naomi? And she says to them, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet or, 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 or pleasant, happy. Call me Mara. 
I'm changing my name to Mara because Mara means bitter. Bitter because the Lord has dealt with me harshly. So there you are in a foreign land, a Moabite among the Jews, and you're living with a depressed mother-in-law who's changed her name to Mrs. Bitter. It's a tough way. And not only that, they're poor. They have no money. There's no safety net. There's no Social Security. And, and so Naomi, Mara, looks at her daughter-in-law and says, you know, there's, there's a kinsman redeemer. And his fields are over there. So if you go, the kinsman redeemer is somebody in the clan who's supposed to be magnanimous and, and may potentially marry a widow. Go over there, and, and, and in the, New, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy says, when you harvest your field, don't harvest everything, but leave some, some grain for the poor to pick up and survive on. Thus, they will have dignity because they're working. And so, so do that. Don't, don't harvest everything. So they, they, do, they, they harvest, but they leave some. And so she goes to the field of this man named Boaz. Boaz is the man. Let me tell you something. He's the man. I, 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 I'm, I'm tempted to change my name to Boaz. Boaz Brown, though, doesn't sound great. Kind of like Buster Brown. Just doesn't, but anyway, but, but, but one of the things, I'm, one of you can tell me this afterwards, but I meet a lot of women named Ruth because Ruth was admirable. I've, I've met very few Boazes in my life. Why, why, why is that? Just tell me afterwards, okay. But, so, Boaz. And it says in chapter 2, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man. The word worthy means, can mean influential, wealthy, powerful, or magnanimous. Some people say a prototype to the medieval knight. He was a worthy man. He was all those things. He was also a God-saturated man. I'll tell you why. Because it says here in chapter 2 that Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord Jehovah be with you. That's not a common greeting. And they responded, the Lord bless you. And later he says to Ruth, it says verse 12 in chapter 2, that the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he's a God-saturated man. He's a worthy man. And she goes into his field and she's working. And this is what happens. This is, this is so much fun. This is such a great story. I hope, hope, hope you are enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying saying it to you. Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The Moabite. And she sticks out. She's not a Jew. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the far off country. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for short rest. She's not only gracious and kind, she's a worker. She's a worker. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men? Do not touch her. Protection. Magnanimous, he's protecting her. Don't, don't, don't belittle her for being a non-Jew. Don't you dare say things that are despicable or underhanded. You don't do that. 
And, and, and when you're thirsty, he says, go to the vessels and drink all you want from the water the young men have drawn. And, and then she fell on her face to the ground. And she said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. And then he said this, but he says, Ruth, I've heard about how you treated your mother-in-law since the death of her husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord Jehovah repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. I says, God bless you. This God of gracious covenant keeping, may he guard you and guide you and bless you. And then he says once again to the young men, do not reproach her. Don't you dare say anything wrong to her because she's a non-Jew, because she's a Moabite, because her skin may be darker than yours. Don't you dare do that. And we see them as, as people who are worthy. And this is what happened. So if a woman dies, excuse me, if a woman loses her husband, then the Old Testament allows for a close of kin to marry her if they so desire. And so Boaz is part of that clan. And Naomi knows that. So Naomi calls Ruth in and she says, Boaz is, is a fine, he's a worthy man. So do this. Tonight at the harvest festival, they were camping out probably in the field, and Boaz had his own tent because he's, he's, he's the boss. Uh, go in there and lay down at his feet and cover his feet, which is a sign of, of humiliation, but also a sign that she is available. I don't recommend that today in this culture. You know, if, if, you, if you want to get married and you want to find the young guy you like, don't go somewhere and just lay down his feet and cover it. Well, that, that's, that probably wouldn't work. Uh, probably really be misconstrued. You shouldn't do that. Anyway, that, in this culture, that was what they did. So, so Ruth goes into his tent and pitch black, covers his feet, lays down. And the Bible says that about midnight, uh, the man was startled. And he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Whoa. And he said, who are you? It's black. It's pitch black. And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me. See, see, in, in, in God's economy, protect and defend me as my kinsman redeemer. God, God bless, God spread his wings, spreads his wings over us through people who, who govern and love and caring for us. It's a wonderful statement. The same word that's used. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And then he gives her a blessing and a promise. The blessing is, may you be blessed by Jehovah, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. I mean, Boaz was a little bit older. He says, you know, you, you didn't pursue young men at the top of their virility. Well, you, you've, you've opened yourself up to me. I don't know how old he was, but he wasn't obviously a, a young man. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, and he says, 
and here's the promise. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Do you see? Worthy woman. He's a worthy man. She's a worthy woman. You're a woman of virtue. You're a woman of character. Ruth. He says there's a little problem, though. Um, I, I am your redeemer, but there is one nearer to me, nearer to you than me. He says, I'm, I'm going to work that out. And then the assurance remains tonight and let in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, if, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you or take you, as the Lord lives, I will lie down and sleep. And so he goes into town, he meets this other guy that's closer to her in the line of succession, and he says, no, I'm not interested. He says, I am. I am. I want Ruth, a worthy woman. And so he takes off his sandal and he gives it to the guy, which is like, he notarized it, and and, uh, he marries Ruth. They get married. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David, King David. This is King David's great-grandmama and great-granddaddy in the line of Christ. This is a great story. And so I I think as we look at this, I'm going to give you four principles uh, about loving your wife, not being harsh with them, that comes from the life of Boaz. So I'm going to throw in one. I don't like alliteration. I've been in sermons where the pastors alliterate. It's really not in the text, but I'm going to alliterate this morning. So I'll just say that. Forgive me. Like, alliteration is Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers, how many peppers did Peter Piper pick? I, I can say that usually. Here's the one I can't say. Um, she sells seashells by the seashore. I have a hard time saying that one. I've got to say it real slow. But this won't be that difficult. It's a four-piece. How do we love our wives? Um, first of all, we need to praise our wives. Again, the word for love means to cherish. It means to have uh, pleasure in. It means to have affections for. Love our wives. Um, Husbands, it is not enough, according to this word, to bring home a check, to provide for a 401k and insurance. That's not enough. We need to cherish our wives. We, We need to have affection for them, to take pleasure in them. It's not enough, listen to me, to just do the right thing. Mother's Day, you've got to quote Proverbs 31. So here it is, Proverbs 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. Praised. Um, thankful. Praised. I just thought of this, just hit me. But, uh, I love Winston Churchill. 
And if, if you've seen the, the latest Winston Churchill movie, what's it called? What is it called? Something Darkness. Darkest Hour. It's not historically true to a degree. Um, Churchill did not go on the subway and get his courage from people on the subway. I mean, he didn't do that. He never equivocated about fighting the Nazis. So it's, 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 it's a good movie, but it's just understand that. But part of the movie that is very true is he had a tender love for his wife. Um, and they had a wonderful marriage. And late in his life, somebody asked him at a, at a dinner, if you could live again, what would you do? He said, I don't know what I'd do, but if I had a thousand lives, I would always want to be Mrs. Churchill's husband. Wow. I mean, the guy was brilliant for a lot of reasons, but that, 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 man, that works. So, so I just say, men, husbands, pray, praise your wife. Be affectionate to them. Labor for affections. You don't fall into good health habits. You don't fall into understanding intellectually some of the arguments of our day. You don't, I, I think you don't necessarily fall into affection. You have to labor for affections. Labor to be affection. Labor to praise. It, 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 I've been married 38 years almost. It, 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 you got to do that. I got to do it. I got to do a better job. Um, especially if you're from Germany or the Scandinavian countries. It's kind of a joke. That's true. Uh, there's a guy named Hugh Hewitt. I like Hugh Hewitt a lot. And he was, came from a Catholic background, came to know Christ. And he said he joined the Presbyterian Church because he determined that that's the church in which he would least likely be hugged. <laughs> least likely be hugged. That's the way some of us operate. You know, be affectionate. Labor to be affectionate. Uh, number two, be a, be a, be a pace setter. Praise your wife. Be a pace setter. Uh, a pace setter, we should be the first to ask for forgiveness, which is hard for me. I've got to be honest with you. It's hard for me to say, I was wrong. Do you forgive me? Yes. We've got to be a pace setter in, in seeking the Lord. We, I mean, we've got to be a pace setter in pursuing Christ in a life of purity. Do not let pornography get your soul. It's destructive, it's damnable. So some people say, read the Bible and look at Paul and say, well, is, is Paul a bit schizophrenic? Because he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. But then he says in 1 Timothy 1, 15, the gospel of grace is for all men, including me, the chief of sinners or the foremost of sinners. They say, well, which is it? I mean, 1 Timothy is after 1 Corinthians. Well, what is it? I say, it's both. See, if you are a... Christian husband, a Christian father, an elder, a deacon, a pastor, a small group leader, you're called to benevolent leadership in your sphere of influence. You're, you're called to a benevolent responsibility to care for and protect and love those around you. And, and so whether we want to or not, men, Christian men, we look at those around us and say, you follow me as I follow Jesus. And we also say in the same breath, and Jesus saves sinners, of whom I am the chief. Therefore, I need the daily grace of the Holy Spirit. I'm a man who's called to be responsible, and I'm a man of weakness. Pace setter. Thirdly, protect. 
Boaz protected Ruth. Man, he protected her. As, as men, we're called to protect those under our charge. We are the first ones to run into a burning building to retrieve those who are hurting, and we're the last ones to run out. We're the first ones to hold the boat on the Titanic while other people get on the ship and as we go down with the ship. We're to protect. We're to nurture. Boaz protected now, I'm, I'm throwing this in. I think it's implied in the story. But we plead. We plead for the welfare of those around us. I, some of our young people under the age of 30 really are not acquainted with James Dobson, and I'm sorry for that. And James Dobson, for years and years, did such a wonderful job in these areas. And never forget reading a book by James Dobson where he said that his, I think it was his grandfather, yeah, grandfather, Nazarene tradition, would fast once a day for his children and his grandchildren. Once a day. Oh, excuse me, once a week. Fast once a week for his children and his grandchildren for 24 hours. And he just recounted how his children and his grandchildren were walking with the Lord. And I, and I just stopped and I thought, thanks be to God for godly parents and grandparents who pray. So a good leader, a Christian man, who loves his wife and is not harsh, but they pray for them. I've been singing a hymn all week. It's got stuck in my brain. I'm just going to go around singing it. It's entitled, uh, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. The stanza I've been singing, the most sounds goes like this. Praise to the Lord, who does prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew, or think, think anew, ponder anew, what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. I just think, ponder anew what the living God in his triune glory can do if you seek him and he pours out his blessing in your life. Be men, people, who understand these concepts. Love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Don't embitter them to you or your faith or your stand. Be tenderhearted. Protect and praise. Be a pace setter and plead. And we all need grace. Every person here, me, we're called to say, follow me as I follow Christ. In the same breath, we say, man, I'm the chief of sinners. I need the grace of Christ in my life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, thank, thank you that you are God, eternal, in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unchanging, and, and that you are a communicating God. You took on flesh. Thank you that you're a communicating God. You gave us the scriptures. And thank you that your desire for us is for our welfare, for us to represent you to our culture. And I, I pray that we as a church would have families that are strong and tender and laughter-filled and at times filled with sorrow over sin, weeping over our culture. But, but there would be a sense of robust, Christ-given energy and love that permeates our homes 
And to that end, I believe the Bible teaches that we men are to be the pace setters. So make us tender and broken over our silliness. Uh, make us mindful of our weakness. And Lord, make us, make us people who pant to be a blessing to our family and the coming generations. Thank you that our legacy will live on. Whether people even know our name, our legacy will live on in the lives of those we have loved and nurtured and cared for and represented Christ to. So, God, we need grace. Uh, bless us, I pray, O oh Lord, this day. Thank you for the joy of worship in Jesus' name. Amen.